Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, gentlemen. A lot has been happening around Afghanistan. There's a, a drawdown of troops, at least now, uh, with the current president. Uh, Jim, what's going to be going on there? Well, <laughs> that's not a question that's answered very succinctly. The problem is that there are several players, as it were, major players. Uh, and they, they, to boil it all down, it's the, the Afghan Taliban... Uh, the drug gangs, uh, who are actually independent of, by and large, of the Taliban, and Pakistan. Oh, and then, of course, we have the Afghan government, which represents most of the country. Um, the uh, Afghan Taliban work for Pakistan, which is unpopular with most Afghans. Um, they do this because some of them believe that eventually they'll be back in power, the vast majority of Afghans say that'll never happen, but everybody wants to avoid another bloodbath. We forget, as some people forget, that Afghan has been, well, at least until 2001, it was in a state of civil war uh, since the, uh, the late 1970s. Uh, actually, if you want to, you can blame it all on the Russians. Uh, before the, uh, you know, the, the Russian invasion in, in 79, uh, Afghan, at least the urban areas, Kabul and a few other cities, uh, were westernizing. Now, something that was missed by most foreign observers was that they represented less than 10% of the population. In fact, if you include those who were really enthusiastically westernizing, maybe 5% back in the 1970s. Now, this was a radical uh, change for Afghans. But as the Russians learned very quickly, uh, the uh, the people out in the countryside were still very Islamic. Now, the big mistake the Russians made was that there had been a coup. Uh, actually, there had been several coups, but anyway, the, first the king got booted, and there was a uh, there was a uh, communist government, and there was that was overthrown. Uh, and at that point, the Russians said, "Look, we're so close. We'll just give it a little push." So they sent in troops. Uh, that basically united. Uh, well, it, it, it made the Russians realize two things. One, uh, one thing the majority of uh, almost all Afghans could agree on was they don't want the Russians. They don't want foreigners invading them again. The second thing they learned the hard way was there weren't that many communists. There weren't that many Afghans who were willing to back communism. Uh, and, and actually, the third thing they realized, which became sort of a, a running joke throughout the war, was when uh, Brezhnev went to the Stavka, that's the, the general, supreme general staff in Russia, and asked him, how many troops can we support in, uh, in Afghanistan? And the answer was like something 187,000. Now, this was done based on logistics. And the Russians knew about logistics in there because they had bought, uh, built the Salang Tunnel, which was a vital <coughs> part of a highway between the north, where Russia was, and the south which was Kabul and, you know, a lot, most of the population was. <clears throat> and the Russians thought they were very clever. Well, we built a lot of the roads that didn't exist before, and we built the Salang Tunnel, so they protected. They had a lot of troops protecting the Salang 
tunnel. Uh, but they found out there were not enough troops <coughs> left over to police the entire country. And that's why the war kept grinding on and on and on. The Russians simply couldn't get enough troops in there. Now, they tried it with air power. Uh, they used some clever diplomacy. They, uh, they basically won over uh, some of the, the tribes to be neutral, not to be you know, pro-Russian. Uh, and that included a lot of the, uh, the tribes, the non-Pushtun tribes in the north. Um, and basically, it slogged on until, until the Russians finally, this was 1989, right about the time the, the Soviet Empire was collapsing from bankruptcy. Uh, that wasn't mentioned in the press release about them withdrawing from Afghanistan. But they, they quietly pulled out. They kept subsidizing the government they left behind, the government they'd established, which promptly found itself uh, uh, confined uh, to Kabul and not much else. And all the rebel factions, the uh, uh, the Pushtuns from the south and the various other uh, Tajik and uh, Uzbek and what have you, uh, uh, tribal warlords from the north, and they were basically fighting over who's going to get Kabul. Uh, and then Pakistan looked at all this, quite a, quite a bit of alarm, and said, well, we got to do something. Pakistan was where most of the, <coughs> the what, I think it was four or five million uh, Afghan uh, civilians fled to, <clears throat> and that was where uh, Saudi Arabia uh, basically helped fund a jihad. Now, the Americans, uh, the CIA is blamed for all this, but the Americans supplied some of the more advanced weapons, but all the, the most of the weapons, and we're talking about basic stuff like AK-47s, ammunition, RPGs, this was bought and paid for uh, by Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it was funneled through the Pakistani military and ISI, which took a nice cut, you know, and so they thought, hey, you know, at least we're making money off this war. Um, but it also meant that the Saudis were allowed to set up uh, madrasas, religious schools, where all the instructors were the Wahhabi, the very, very conservative, uh, you know, sect which dominates uh, Saudi politics, the place where no other religion may be, may be openly preached or uh, basically practiced, where if, you, if, a, if, a, if a Muslim uh, converts to another religion, it's a, it's, a, it's a capital offense and they enforce it. Uh, they behead people, you know, every several hundred people or more in some years uh, for disobeying one law or another, including sorcery. That's that's a no, no. Uh, so anyway, Wahhabism was introduced into Pakistan where it really hadn't existed before. Uh, and so that was something that a curse that, that, that Pakistan doesn't want to admit that it, it's fell, it's fell prey to um, the uh, the Afghans rejected it. They were never hardcore. They thought the Arabs were crazy. They may have had something in that. At least the ones that were in uh, in uh, in in Pakistan and Afghanistan, included Osama bin Laden, who've got the bright idea that hey, I can take all these these jihadis and I can start a in a global Islamic uh, revolution and take over the world. They still believe that. Um, and uh, you know everybody got it wrong in Afghanistan. The Afghans just wanted to be left alone. Uh, they don't want. They want to be messed with, uh, and uh, this is a problem that's always been present in Afghanistan uh, to this day. Now, one thing that came after the Taliban were were uh, turfed out, uh, a measure of peace and enormous amounts of foreign aid brought a level of prosperity 
and other benefits like longer life. Uh, for for a long time, Afghanistan had the lowest life expectancy in Eurasia. We were talking all of Asia and all of Europe. Um, they're no longer that. I forget who's in first place now, but they um, they the standard of living was way up for everybody. Now, eventually, a lot of that was driven by the drug trade. Now, the drug trade again is a gift from Pakistan. The Chinese had basically shut down the drug trade in the in the in the Golden Triangle in northern Burma and Thailand and what have you uh, by 1980. Uh, China, by the way, was the first major country which had a drug problem. That was back in the 18th century when uh, China was prospering and all this uh, this opium, not not. Not heroin. That hadn't been invented. That was a German invention in the 19th century. Um, and uh, but opium, you know, used to be a very expensive uh, painkiller for the very rich who were ill, or if they were really decadent and uh, not ill, they could just get high. But with the the uh, lower price for uh, Burmese Golden Triangle opium and more prosperity in China, the Chinese government found its upper class, which basically ran the country. Uh, the uh, the next generation were all dope fiends, uh, so they basically shut that down. They also got into an argument with the British over that, but that's another story. The uh, the Chinese finally shut that down with the cooperation of other countries in the area, and it moved to Pakistan, which was pretty much the Wild West. It seemed like a good place for the Golden Triangle to reestablish itself. Uh, Pakistanis didn't go for that, and they found out they could easily sort of nudge it into Afghanistan. And so by the 19, early 1980s, the uh, the drug trade was booming in Afghanistan with the help of the Pakistani military, uh, who had decided in the 1970s, or actually, well, yeah, in the late 1970s, uh, to make uh, unacknowledged support for Islamic terrorism a tool for uh, fighting their enemies, mainly India. But also Afghanistan, anybody else they could they, they tried it on everywhere, but the only place where they're still at it is really in Afghanistan and uh, India, uh, which they're in big trouble for now. But that's another story. Actually, I think we read a bit uh, today on that on, on Pakistan's problems with uh, not being blacklisted for being such blatant supporters of Islamic terrorism, um, and uh, for a long time, uh, you know. It, it, People looked the other way in the West, especially. Uh, it, it was fashionable to blame the CIA uh, for what went, what happened in in, Pakistan, in Afghanistan, uh, and ignoring the fact that it's Saudi Arabia and Pakistan who are responsible for it. Now, in the last five years, uh, Pakistan has had has has come into the focus of everybody in the world who said, "You guys." are what caused this mess, are, are mainly responsible for it. And that is why, uh, even though Pakistan continues to deny everything, unless they're a retired general, you know, sitting in exile outside of the country, a lot of them admit, yes, yeah, we, we did a bad, bad thing. Um, and books have been written and what have you. Um, of course, now that's a capital offense in Pakistan to badmouth the, uh, the military openly like that. But... The FA, FATA, FATA, the uh, the the uh, anti-terrorism financial uh, organization uh, has since 2000 been been basically telling countries 
to either you know shut down the money laundering and the, and the soliciting of funds for uh, you know criminals as well as Islamic terrorists, or you can't use the banking system anymore. The only two countries on the blacklist right now are Iran and North Korea. So you can see they're serious about this. Now they have another dozen people on the gray list where uh, Pakistan stood for a long time. China intervened. China's now mixed up in this uh, because they've basically been uh, been protecting. They've been simultaneously criticizing quietly uh, Pakistan for the their support of Islamic terrorism because a lot of that <coughs> translates into attacks on the what nearly 20,000 Chinese workers in, pa- in Pakistan right now implementing you know, over $100 billion in infrastructure investment China is making uh, in order to uh, make Pakistan, uh, Pakistan a branch of their new, you know, uh, Silk Road, as it were, their, their, their Belt and, and uh, Belt, Belt and Road, and Road Initiative. Belt is and Road Initiative, BRI right. Or, okay. or- anyway, um, that's proved to be a problematic, uh, a, a, an overly ambitious project. For them. But anyway, Pakistan stands to benefit an enormous amount. Uh, the problem with Pakistan right now is not only being found out as a supporter of international terrorism, especially in Afghanistan, uh, but they're also bankrupt because the army have for years have been basically stealing more and more, not just getting a lo- an unusually large chunk of the budget, but they basically <clears throat> bullied their way into taking over or getting, you know, uh, percentages of, of, of major companies and what have you. Um and uh, Pakistan is still technically a democracy, um, but India wisely, when they, you know, when these two countries split, they were basically similar in, in economy and everything else. The Indians went out of their way to eliminate feudalism. There was a lot of feudal land landlords who uh, who basically uh, kept their their serfs, as it were, in poverty. That was part of their business plan. And uh, India, to their credit. They bought them all out, uh, and that's pretty big dividends. But the other thing they did, which sort of backfired, was they in 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 in, in uh, instituted laws and and procedures, which made sure that the military would never take over the government, as they have done, uh, you know, uh, continuously not continuously but periodically in Pakistan. Half the time since uh, since the uh, Pakistan was created in forty seven. The, the government has been taken over by the military for the good of the, you know, the, the, the democracy or whatever. Uh, and basically that is wearing very thin with most uh, Pakistanis. But because of the Saudi uh, madrasas and, uh, and the spread of, uh, you know, Islamic fundamentalism, uh, you have about uh, 10, 20 percent of Pakistanis are fanatic about their, their Islam. That was not always the case. I mean, they were they were very they were they were passionate enough about it. Their distinct uh, identity as 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 Muslim, you know, Indians to have their separate country. Of course, a lot of Pakistanis are saying maybe that wasn't such a good idea because Bangladesh, which used to be East Pakistan, originally Pakistan was what is now Pakistan and Bangladesh in the east. They were separated. Uh, Bangladesh was quite different. The only thing they had in common with the the West Pakistan was they were both majority Muslim. Uh, but already the uh, the West Pakistanis uh, were tolerating a lot more religious intolerance than was the case in Bangladesh. And when Bangladesh basically sought to become independent, 
West Pakistan uh, tried to suppress it, and a million Bangladeshis got killed. The Indians intervened, so the West pa- the Pakistanis still blame India for Bangladesh going uh, independent, which is not true. Uh, and uh, and Bangladesh is doing much better, even though they have fewer natural resources uh, than than Pakistan. Uh, but they have a lot less, uh, practically no Islamic terrorism. So you can see what the what the what the what the the key element in all this is: the support of Islamic terrorism and the attempt by Pakistan to use it to control, to have enormous influence uh, over the um, uh, the Af- whatever Afghan government there is. Now. They had a certain amount of control over the uh, the Taliban government that, that existed from, what, 96, 97 up through 2001. But the thing that, again, a lot of people forget was that when we went into the support of Northern Alliance, which was still fighting the Taliban, the Taliban did not control the entire country. Uh, and more, uh, uh, more, other, more other countries were inclined to uh, assist the Northern Alliance. Uh, Russia in, in particular, now uh, the Soviet Union, uh, they, uh, well, now it was Russia in the 1990s. And even though Russia was broke, post-Soviet Russia was broke, once they got a few uh, rubles together, they could, they could uh, you know, spend elsewhere. They started talking to the, uh, the Northern Alliance and said, look, we do not want a, a, a religious uh, Islamic uh, uh, conservative government. Uh, in Afghanistan, and that's one thing they and those Afghans in the north uh, could agree on. Also, the uh, most of the Afghans, the Russians were able to to bribe, coerce, whatever, into going neutral. Were in the north, uh, who wanted no part of this, uh, you know, uh, tearing the country apart uh, with another uh, with another uh, you know war with Russia. Uh, so here you have it. A lot of this has basically been non-news for decades. That Pakistan is the key factor in whether or not there's going to be peace in Afghanistan. And right now, Pakistan is giving no indication of going along with any peace deal that they do not control. Uh, and of course, another complication is you have the uh, the elected government in, in Afghanistan who the Taliban didn't even want to talk to. Now they're at least talking to them. Um and the Taliban, of course, won a lot of concessions before they'll even talk to the government to continue talking to us. We've released thousands of, of, uh, <coughs> of convicted and imprisoned, you know, Taliban operatives. Uh, we've really got nothing to show for it. Now, the Taliban do have pressure on them, but it's not from the United States. It's from, on one side, Pakistan. And this is split. The Taliban. Again, that's something you don't hear too much about. There's a guy named Rasul, a former uh, uh, heir apparent to the Afghan Taliban, uh, now out in in eastern Afghanistan, who has basically established his own, how should I put it, uh, faction, a dissident faction of the Taliban, and is basically getting support from Iran. Now, Iran has no love of the Taliban. They hate the Taliban. But what they do like is anybody who will protect the 15 or so percent of Afghans who are Shia. In fact, the most recent proposal, this is, this is news uh, from Iran, is that they will basically finance and arm 
uh, a, a Shia militia using uh, thousands of uh, Shia Afghans who went to fight in Syria as Af- as uh, as uh, Iranian mercenaries. Uh, over 10,000 of them did. And they were the best mercenaries they had. Most of the mercenaries uh, were, <clears throat> were either, you know, Shia from um, uh, Iraq or other countries in the region. Uh, and uh, and especially Afghanistan, where they basically went into the refugee camps and says, hey, look, you want a residency uh, permit for your family? Because they were expelling all the, uh, the refugees as much as they could. Um, and they said, you know, sign up, we'll pay good, you know, benefits, health, death benefits, health care. It's that usual nine yards. Think these, uh, these Afghans, you know, only saw in Western movies. Um, they said, really? And, and all we got to do is take a rifle and kill people. Hey, hey, that's, that's fine with us. And so, and they did. And, but, uh, what, Af- what Af- Afghanistan has been worried about the government and the Taliban is that thousands of these have been coming home uh, with combat skills and a and a certain a certain a sense of you know we can fight this anti Shia you know uh, activity which is rampant now in uh, which was to a greater extent in Syria because Syria uh, for for uh, forever or at least from since the 60s and 70s, was a Shia, the Shia-run dictatorship in a in a, a Sunni majority. The population, about 80, 85% of the population was Sunni. Uh, and the Assad family did it basically by balancing one faction of Sunnis and and and, and off against another. And basically, they, they, it was a house of cards which eventually started coming down. Um but because the Sunni uh, Islamic terrorists who took over the rebel movement couldn't agree among each other who was going to be in charge, they self-destructed. They're still fighting, uh, but they lost. Um, and uh, and one of the reasons they lost was, was because they had these uh, Shia uh, mercenaries from Afghanistan who were the, probably the best fighters on the government side. Uh, because most of the in these days, uh, most Syrians in the Syrian army, even though they're on the winning side, they're better equipped, they're better armed, et cetera, et cetera. They don't want to fight. I mean, they've been going on for a decade, almost a decade now. Um, and uh, it's very hard to get enthusiastic Syrian soldiers. You can get them in uniform, you can get them armed, you get them through training, but don't ask them to fight. Uh, that's why a lot of them are deserting. So the, uh, the Assad still need foreign help. And uh, even though they control most of the they control most of the country, they can't really uh, control it all, police it all, unless they have some some outside assistance. So the Afghans are all over the place, playing a key role, but they're basically at the mercy of Pakistan. So when you ask, is there going to be a peace deal with the uh, with the uh, with the Taliban in Afghanistan? You're asking the wrong question. The question is. Is Pakistan going to basically pull the rug out from the Afghan Taliban, uh, cripple the drug business, and basically bring peace to Afghanistan? Do the Pakistanis want that? Most Pakistanis would be fine, but the military has made it a a reason for their existence and growing power that uh, they must have some decisive control over what goes on uh, in Afghanistan. The other thing they don't like to admit is that they're the ones who benefit from the the bribes and the fees, as it were, that are paid to 
to export the essential drugs to convert opium into heroin um, and also the the ammonium nitrate, the fertilizer, which is now illegal in Afghanistan, uh, facilitate that being smuggled into Afghanistan so the Taliban can make you know roadside bombs and what have you. Um, so the, the army doesn't want to lose their cash cow here, uh, but at the same time, uh, that cash cow only works if they keep supporting uh, chaos in a lot, especially southern Afghanistan, with the with the drug gangs uh, and their and their basically uh, pistolero, uh, you know, Af- uh, Taliban uh, have enormous influence. So there it is. The question isn't 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 uh, you know will it be peace, but you know who who has the who has the decisive power. Uh, the only thing the Americans do is uh, make it more difficult for another civil war to occur in. Um, uh, in Afghanistan, because the northern, the former northern alliance, which again, uh, there is an alliance of warlords and what have you, uh, who are better organized, better motivated, uh, not high on drugs, they're anti-drug. Um, they have made it clear that they will not tolerate another, uh, you know, uh, Taliban government. And if one if one arises, they will take help from wherever they can get it. And if that means Iran, which will be a headline one of these days, if it does come to that, they people will say nobody knew. Well, anybody who wasn't listening to this doesn't know. Um, you know, uh, how could that happen? It's already happening, and it's been happening for a long time. And India is also involved. Not only that, India and Iran got together and basically built a new. Uh, Exit a new rail road, a rail and road and sea uh, outlet for Afghanistan. Until this new port was built, and it went, it basically went live in the last two years. It includes a railroad, a road, and of course access to this port. Um, uh, India, I think, alone spent over two billion dollars on it. Uh, the the main primary and the and the most economical access to uh, the outside world for Afghanistan was through Pakistan. Now, Pakistan's lost that. Now, that pains them no end, but they really can't say so. Um, and uh, the Afghans are basically feeling the roots because they say, you know, look, you haven't got us by the throat to the extent you had in the past. And, you know, we, we can say no with some conviction. And the Afghans are saying no. And the Pakistan, now, pa- Af- Pakistanis in general are fine with that. They don't like being tied up one way or another in Afghanistan. Uh, <clears throat> the whole problem with Afghanistan is not Afghanistan. It's the, it's the tribes, the Baluchis and, and the Pushtuns, who together, I think, make up nearly 20% of the, the population. And uh, in the, the Pushtun territories, two-thirds of the, the Pushtuns in the world are in Pakistan. The other third are in, in Afghanistan. So, like you say, it, like, like if you look at it that way, the problem is in Afghanistan is the Pushtuns and the Pushtuns in and uh, Pakistan are trying to form a nonviolent Pushtuns are very violent people. So this is unnatural for them. But they realize that the most likely way to get more political power and more freedom and more or less army, as it were, is to is to unite and basically uh, make the world and Pakistan aware that. The Pushtuns have had enough. They're not going to take it anymore. Uh, 
And of course, that the 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 army quickly, you know, classified the Pushtun, you know, the, this movement as subversive, et cetera, et cetera, and are using the usual thuggish techniques to try and put it down. But see, this is what the this is what Pakistan is basically up against, not Afghanistan, but the the tribal uh, separatists. Uh, Baluchistans are especially separatists, and these are the ones that, that bother the Chinese more so than the Islamic terrorists, because the Islamic terrorists, the Chinese have a lot of help. Everybody can agree worldwide that the Islamic terrorists are bad, but you know the world is more divided over separatism. The Baluchis were never as violent and as much of a threat as the as the, as the Pushans or the Pahans, as the uh, British call them. Um, in fact, when the British left uh, India, the uh, the arrangement with the 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 Pahans, the Pushtuns in uh, in India, was that they had they had a sense they had a degree of autonomy. They basically were ruled not by the the, the colonial laws but by tribal laws. And basically, the tribal chiefs, leaders, cooperated with the British to maintain peace. If there was a problem, the local British official would walk in there under a flag of, you know, uh, truce or whatever, hoping that he could survive it because those flags didn't always work for foreigners. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe get a jirga. That's a a meeting of the major muckamucks in the the area. And that's how the the Pushtuns would work out their, you know, their differences. Um, and the Pakistanis allowed that to continue, but what has happened, uh, you know, also since the seventies, uh, that the new generation, uh, coming up successive generations in the Pushtun territories are basically less tied to the old ways. They see there's a better way. And that's what this new movement is all about. They basically, they basically, the old tribal structure is at best, you know, admired, but not really, you know, it hasn't got the supreme power it used to have. Uh, and the uh, the younger generation says, "Look, we need a little more participation. We, you know, uh, the feudalism, the feudal tribal structure was fine, you know, for a long time because that's all we had. But now there are alternatives. So there's a lot of chaos going in there. So it's not so much what happens in Afghanistan that's important. It's what's going on in Pakistan." Uh, Dan, I, I, Austin, your take I on wanna, this? I, I want to pick up on uh, on on uh, Jim's. Uh, points about the uh, Pushtun and in and Pakistan and I'm I'm glad he he got to that this is um the you'll look at a map of Pakistan understand that some of the political components of this have changed really in the last the last few years but the northwestern uh tribal lands federated tribal lands that strip of Pushtun, uh, <coughs> Pushtun uh, tribal territories, duchies in, in some ways, are right along the Afghan border, and they're up in the mountains. Now, you go back four or five centuries, and these tribes would raid into the Indus River Valley, and even further than that, you know, the Indus River that runs from the Siachen Glacier down to the Indian Ocean, but it goes right through Pakistan. And it was a problem for the Indians because Pakistan was not Pakistan, it was Northwestern India. 
Uh, they happen to be Muslims there predominantly, but uh, not totally. There were Hindus there as well. And it, it, you had to have some sort of security force as well as a political, di diplomatic so a, a security force to stop the tribal raiders. Uh, India still sees this as a problem, but one, it's not policed by the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis, in, after the division of India into Pakistan and India, suddenly didn't have the strategic depth that they had when they were part of India, and they're sitting there facing the mountain tribes. Now, over the last 70 years, Jim described that there's education, uh, connection to uh, the uh, is Islamabad and, and Karachi. You know, there's roads, uh, there are schools, and you've had a, some change in, in the conditions of the Pushtun tribe, tribes people in, uh, in, in Pakistan. But there is that difference, and I'm, Jim's talking about some of the other divisions, problems uh, of uh, tribes in, in Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan faced the issue of its own Pushtun problem. And part of the way that they, the moderation, this is uh, going to sound, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and say it, but part of the moderation was the militarization of the of these uh, tribal zones of the Pushtun, meaning the Pakistani army occupied them. Um, maybe not overtly, but they were there. And it was uh, I, as much a security program as it was a pacification program. Still, Jim said, here's the, it's the two-thirds versus one-third. The other third of the Pushtuns are on the other side of the border in Afghanistan. Now, some of that's calculated. There is no greater uh, Pushtun stand. Uh, there were some Indians that thought that was a good idea. Uh, it may no longer be a good idea, and maybe it hasn't been a, 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 a good idea for, se uh, for 70 years. But that's part of the problem that Pakistanis wrestle with. It's not just the drug business. That throws money into it. It's not just Islamic extremism. Some of these tribes were in the raiding business, and they, they were Muslims, but they, they weren't fighting jihad. Jihad became another way to uh, ju justify uh, uh, the mayhem. Now, Dan, one thing that when we were decided we were going back to Afghanistan is, is Dan going to ask us how you fix it? And... This is one of these problems that is almost unfixable. You've got that division with Jim talking about the Northern Alliance. There's a, a demographic difference. You've got Tajiks and, 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 and Turkmen and several other uh, uh, tribes up in the northern, uh, northern areas of uh, Afghanistan. Some of them have also uh, moved in to uh, over time in, in, into the Kabul area. Kabul is kind of a, 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 a hodgepodge because it's uh, been the urban, uh, urban center of, uh, uh, of Afghanistan. But, uh, and 
Kabul has known periods, even since the uh, American uh, invasion in 2001, of uh, relative calm and relative peace. But it is very easy to disturb that by firing a couple of rockets and setting off some bombs, which the uh, Taliban uh, figured out they could always get a, uh, get a headline by blowing up a, 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 a car in Kabul. Jim's already addressed what that does to the rest of the Afghanis in the area. They hate it. They're tired, talking about being tired of war in Syria. Many of the Afghan tribes, and they you know, spread out through the non-Pushtuns on this, had let it be known to the central government, such as it is, that, you know, we could work this out if it weren't for the militancy of the Taliban. So that's part of what happened when you managed to get a, a open election. The, the Taliban lost it. Some of them, you know, said, "Well, we're going to uh, not. We're not going to participate in electoral politics because of religious faith or, or what or whatever." But remember, the rest of Afghans overwhelmingly uh, Muslim too. Shia, as well as as uh, as Sunni, and you got a statement, an open statement from sixty percent of the country, sixty five percent. We really don't want to keep killing each other. But then you got the drugs, you've got Pakistan's interest, and you have got at least two hardcore. Taliban factions that have differences between themselves. There are more than just two, but two, two, two main ones that get a benefit out of, as Jim said, keeping the chaos going. So I'm not sure how you solve this. I know that you have an international presence, and this is something that I have gotten some angry uh, uh, comments about when I've when I've, I've written this. Some sort of international presence in the Kabul area and in the uh, other major urban areas has a positive positive uh, effect uh, on on how how do, how, how do I want to put this? Has a positive effect, a reinforcing effect. Uh, favoring the tribes that want to stop open armed conflict. The thing is, is who provides that? Uh, the Trump administration said we're tired of Americans doing it, um, but well, we still want to be able to control the Islamic State, uh, fight the Islamic State, and Al Qaeda. Uh, NATO's had it there with its uh, its force. But why should NATO have to carry the burden on it? Who steps in, however, if you don't have NATO or an international uh, international force? China. China really doesn't want to, but China does want to have landlines of communication running through Afghanistan to Pakistan, because that's one way they get around uh, the Indians uh, control. India basically controls the Indian Ocean just uh, by its uh, mere uh, existence. And China is dependent on Southwest Asia and Africa for 
for its uh, natural resources to run its uh, uh, economy, industrial uh, uh, economy. Uh, that's part, part of what the Belt and Road Initiative uh, uh, land components are about is reading, reaching Southwest Asia along land lines, this new, uh, the, the new Silk Road. Well, part of that's going to run through Afghanistan. And this, the thinking is, are the Chinese going to police it? Now, ask the Russians if the, the Russians really think it's a good idea for the Chinese entering Afghanistan. The Indians don't think that's a good idea, and really the Pakistanis ultimately don't. The army may become a, a wholly owned criminal organization in Hawk to Beijing, but the, uh, the people of Pakistan aren't interested in uh, becoming a Chinese satellite. So who polices it? Uh, I'm, I'm open to uh, ideas. Well, I've actually gone through all the ideas. Do you want the Russians? The Russians aren't going to come back, but they're not going to let the Chinese take it. And uh, you do have NATO and a small American contingent there. Uh, does it bring peace? No, it doesn't. You, and until you address, as Jim says, the problems the, in, in Pakistan, and some of them are, it, it, we can sit there and blame ISI and the military, they should be blamed. But some of it also goes back, as I'm describing the tribal differences between the hill people and uh, the valley people. You know, you have the upscale, wealthy cosmopolitans living in the cities. Uh, only in this river, and then you had the armed uh, tribes people uh, looking down and saying, you know, every so once in a while, we need to come down there and steal some rubies. I'm, I'm putting it in you know, figurative, figurative language. So uh, I'm preempting you, Dan, asking what to do about it. Okay. So, <laughs> Jim, what effect is the drawdown going to have there in Afghanistan? Uh, well, it means less um, less effective air support for the Afghans who appreciate that air support. Now, we've been building up their air force, but it's minuscule compared to, I think they, they, never, they never supplied more than 10 or 15% of the uh, air support missions that the, the Afghan security forces received. Um, and uh, while the Afghans are making progress, the major problem is that there are not enough Afghans who can handle not not just the piloting these aircraft, but maintaining them. Uh, they Afghanistan still does not have an industrial infrastructure. Afghanistan has not gone through the industrial revolution. That's something we lose sight of. For example, Russia did not start going through the industrial revolution until a decade or so before World War One. And and the and the communists made made a lot of uh, Boku you know propaganda on this because they basically re revived the the czarist uh, industrial revolution program and all that industrialization in, in in Soviet Union would have been done under Russia no matter who was running the government because it was underway. Well, it's never started in Afghanistan. Uh, they've 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 in, they've increased literacy 
and what the, in in Afghanistan, which used to be like you know fifty percent or something like that. I mean, it was atrocious. Uh, you know, most Afghans out in the countryside, they felt you know you need a couple of guys you can you can read uh, to basically uh, uh, tell everybody else, or basically to read prayers, read the Quran. Um, and that usually meant reading Arabic, not not uh, not Afghan languages. Um, uh, they just didn't have the mindset to let's have an industrial revolution. Well, now a lot of Afghans say we need a Russian re- uh, industrial revolution. They look around Afghanistan and say, how do I get out of this place? Um, and that's why you that's why uh, so many of the the illegal aliens trying to get into Europe, you know, well mainly Europe and what have you, uh, are from Afghanistan. Is because these are these are people who are, are are basically become wealthy enough to afford a people smuggler. You know, you can't just start you know walking and you know get yourself into Europe or even close. Uh, you basically got to pay you know gang criminal gangs uh, to smuggle you you know most of the way, uh, and um, that, that is basically the problem with Afghanistan. There are not enough Afghans. You know, there are a lot of tribes, there are a lot of people who are in cities, they, and they, they, they feel more of an affinity for the, the city, the whatever organization they're working for in the city than they do for, you know, anything else. Um, and the old Afghanistan, you know, pre-1970s Afghanistan, you know, worked because they, everybody recognized that. You know, Afghan, Afghanistan never existed as, a, as, a, as more than a region, as it were. Uh, until I think the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, we reported on this for the exact days. But anyway, the tribes got together when they saw that, you know, the, the British were, were closing in from the south, the Russians, you know, from the north. Um, and of course, they always had the Iranians. Um, and they basically made a, a unprecedented agreement that they would form the kingdom of Afghanistan. And says the the most numerous tribes were Pushtuns. The king would always be a Pushtun, but you know the the, the government jobs would basically be assigned you know in proportion to you know the various other ethnic groups and what have you. And uh, the one important thing the king would do was deal with the foreigners, mainly keep them out. Uh, and any any foreign money coming in, the, even then there was foreign aid, bribes, tribute, whatever, uh, coming in. The uh, the king had to more or less you know, share it out, as it were. And he had the authority to call a, a, a grand jirga. Jirga was, it was a tribal, you know, uh, peace, uh, you know, meeting, as it were, uh, council. Um, and uh, these were called, uh, you know, usually per region and what have you, where several tribes were fighting each other. The king could intervene and, and basically call a jirga and try to preside. But he basically, all he did was, you know, get the people together in the room uh, unarmed, as it were, to talk. And that often didn't work, and in which case they left and resumed fighting. But that provided Afghanistan with a degree of peace and less foreign intervention than they had seen in centuries. The country had basically been all these tribes, not just one Pushtun tribe, but dozens of Pushtun tribes, and almost as many other, you know, Uzbek and um, uh <laughs> the uh, the Tajiks and what have you, and some Baluchis, uh, they basically uh, were in their isolated mountain valleys, uh, self-sufficient, which means they were very poor, um, but armed. And uh, they would fight anybody who came in, and a foreigner was anybody who wasn't from their tribe. So 
they were basically moving moving very slowly towards national unity. But in the 1970s, when the Russians decided to you know, send their communist you know, propagandists into Afghanistan and try and form another you know, communist uh, republic, as it were, uh, the, the, the Afghans rebelled <laughs> before it could even get started. And the Russians were eventually expelled, which they, they well, the, the Russian communists were very upset about that. Russians in general were basically uh, not striking their shoulders well, good riddance. We should have been in there in the first place. Everybody knows the uh, you know, the Afghans are nothing but trouble. In fact, it was a, it was not wasn't a joke during the Tsar's period that if a, some some uh, some senior official was displeasing the Tsar, but not enough to be you know uh, condemned as a traitor and, and, and executed, uh, he would be appointed the ambassador to Kabul. And that 50, 50 cent percent chance he'd die in Kabul because there was no, you know, diplomatic immunity as we know it today. Uh, and if the if the Afghans got a, uh, how should I put it, angry at you, uh, whether officially or unofficially, uh, there was no one to protect you. Uh, the British discovered that uh, through their peril and loss. Um, so, you know, the problem with Afghanistan is there is no Afghanistan. And what we have now is something that's barely holding itself together. Uh, it may take generations uh, to basically form anything resembling, you know, a nation state as exists in other parts of the region. India, Pakistan, even with the, the military domination, Bangladesh. There are a lot of uh, even the Central Asian, you know, the former Soviet stands, you know, north of them. They have established relatively stable uh, uh, um, should I put it prosperous governments? Afghanistan has a lot of natural resources, but unlike all the states around them, they have no government that's powerful enough <coughs> to guarantee peace. So foreign investors can come in, set up a mine or whatever oil, gas, gas drilling or what have you, and get their investment back, and of course have money for you know whoever steals it the, the fastest in Afghanistan. But the point is. That sort of, you know, stability has not come to Afghanistan yet. And a lot of Afghanistanis were very close, but I'd really very like to, like to observe it from somewhere else. Uh, so, I mean, Afghanistan is in bad shape. And whether we're there or not has very little impact on it. So, Austin, what's your feelings on the drawdown? And, and we'll wrap it up with that. I, I, I want to make a a comment on the Jim talking about the uh, air power and just uh, quickly I'll get I'll get to the drawdown 2007 I was in Kabul and I saw one uh, uh, witness an aerial demonstration by the Afghan Air Force uh, the pilot two pilots were flying an old British Canberra bomber you know remember our B57 I don't Jim I don't think I've, I I told you about this I know Pilot uh, you know, you know, well, uh, knew what he was doing. I mean, he took the plane through with some of its uh, 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 loops, swirls about Kabul, and then came in and landed at the uh, international international airport. And I happened to be there with uh, some U.S. Air Force officers, and one of the officers told me, he says, "They're really, in, in his opinion, now this in his opinion." Afghanistan had less, the Afghan Air Force, 10, 10 competent pilots, maybe, you know, 
maybe. And one of them was the pilot who'd been putting on the the uh, demonstration in the uh, 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 Canberra. Uh, Jim mentioned the issue of uh, of maintenance. Maintenance was being supplied by foreign contractors. Uh, there were some Afghanis who wanted to learn how to do it, but they were having to, you know, entire skill set uh, to op uh, operate uh, uh, air aircraft. Uh, one of the things that happened when the Russians invaded, though, is that people with skills like that, who were tied to the government, they fled. Some of them, because they had skills, got to Europe. Even a few got to the United States. They lost, because of the Soviet attack, a cadre of what Jim talking about industrial age skills. Some were developing, but they the Russian invasion, <clears throat> they didn't co-opt them, uh, maybe didn't ki kill them all, but these people fled. So you lost, uh, it's, it's, it's like losing all your high school teachers. You, know, you, didn't, you lost the group that could have made that uh, transformation if they'd had 30 or 40 years of peace, uh, which they didn't have. The Russians, too, another comment on this. The Russians in the 1970s thought they had the U.S. on the ropes because of Afghanistan. And remember the old uh, warm water ports desire by the uh, uh, by the czars. Uh, Here was an opportunity to take advantage. You know, the, the the U.S. is on the ropes. The Indians don't like Great Britain, and they don't like uh, they don't like the United States. Uh, because the so-called U.S. favoritism of Pakistan and, and the uh, uh, 1971 uh, war. And here was an opportunity to move in and take control, you know, take, take, a, take a region that would get them closer to the uh, Indian Ocean. Now, uh, utterly foolish, but that's them, the Russians in Moscow, believing their own, uh, their own propaganda and Still trying to be Peter the Great, I suppose, and it, it didn't didn't end well. Now, what happens, Dan? You know what what happens with this drawdown? There's so few uh, U.S. troops there uh, now. It's that's not. Jim said it's not making a uh, not going to make uh, much difference. No, it it does make a political difference. That's what I said about the. Uh, uh, the, the utility of uh, a of a international international security forces it's uh, is symbolic yes it's got to be strong enough to be able to protect the <laughs> embassies in uh, in Kabul uh, it's the other element Jim already touched on that uh, uh, air air support but also the logistics logistic support uh, uh, and can those be done by contractors and not uh, uh, military forces? Yes, but then you still have the problem of providing security for them. So I I think a minimal, and this is where I've I've gotten uh, you know the t tough feedback on this. Gee, we shouldn't have anybody there. Well, then who's going to be there? Do you have any? Who will have any say over uh, over what goes on with a drug business, uh, what goes on with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, 
who is who remains in power because there are there are a number of Afghanis, particularly in the northern tribes, but also in the in the uh, Kabul area, uh, that uh, want a relationship with Europe and the United States, and they're very suspicious for good reasons of Pakistan, Iran, Russia, and China. Do you just leave them there without? any uh, any security or any 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 relations you just get up and leave uh i think that sets a stage for uh, even greater chaos so how many i don't know i don't know the figure i wish i did but uh aren't we down jim aren't we down to about 5 or 6000 now yeah it's 2500 now it's 2500 okay yeah i don't know i think it's 2500 i was going to say 1500 but no i think it i thought no wait a minute uh and, but we've also got contractors there too but it's uh, yeah. the, that's that's the thing so the the logistics and maintenance force is larger than 2500 but it's 2500 you know we, all right you got to <clears throat> you got uh really Three battalions. That's about what it amounts to. All right. That might be enough. It might be enough. Yeah. We'll wrap it up there. Um, thank you, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.